Thank you, Shaneen. I'd like to look again at uh, that first verse, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Can you imagine the reaction the other disciples had when Jesus comes and says, hey, I want you guys to meet our new disciple. His name's Matthew. He's a tax collector. Whoa. Nobody in the first century, if you're starting a religious movement, would want to have a tax collector as a part of your leadership cohort because, well, tax collectors were, were social pariahs. They were, they were considered traitors because they worked for the occupying Roman government, and, and they were known for being thieves because they would often charge more than was necessary. No one liked a tax collector in the first century. In fact, the truth is we don't really like tax collectors in the 21st century, do we? I saw this comic strip I want to share with you, a little comic strip there. Notice how close the words the IRS are to each other. And it says, like the sign says, it's all theirs. <laughs> theirs. The IRS. Theirs. It's all theirs. Nobody likes tax collectors. We don't like them now. They didn't like them back then. But, la- but back then in the first century, they really were viewed as, as traitors. In fact, tax collectors could not even serve in a, in a court of law because everyone thought that their, their testimony would certainly be a lie. And so can you imagine you're trying to start this new movement and, and the other disciples, the earliest ones like James and John and Andrew and Peter who were fishermen and, and well, they may not have you know, been the who's who of Galilee, but at least they weren't tax collectors. They see Jesus bring Matthew and say, like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why, Matt, a tax collector? I mean, this is the same guy who overcharged me two months ago, and you want to bring him into our group? But Jesus saw something in Matthew, something that the other disciples probably didn't see. Jesus saw something in Matthew that certainly the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, did not see. For history tells us that Matthew proved to be a very faithful disciple. In fact, eventually he put pen to paper and and wrote the gospel of Matthew. How can we make sure that we see others the way that God sees them? To find out, I would encourage you to open your Red Pew Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It may be found on page 304 of your Red Pew Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. And I would encourage you to keep your Red Pew Bible open throughout the message as I make reference to the text. But before we read God's Word again, I would, I would ask that we turn to God and ask His Holy Spirit to guide us even further as we, we open and read His Word together. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, We thank you, Lord, that we have this written account of the anointing of David, this familiar story of how when everyone else saw a shepherd boy, Lord, you saw a king. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see now what you want us to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 1, listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 
And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And and Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can you imagine the scene just for a moment here? Samuel, the great prophet who had previously anointed Saul as the first king in the history of Israel, Samuel, who was the voice of God for the people of God, comes to Bethlehem. And at the time, Bethlehem is a a no-name town, and he comes to Jesse. And Jesse, unlike Saul's father, Kish, is is not known for his great wealth. Jesse's a bit of a no-name himself. And and Samuel shows up, and he he says, I want to anoint one of your sons. And so they begin to bring him. And it makes sense that Jesse would bring his first seven sons. After all, in the Bible, seven is a a number of holy wholeness and completeness. And so Jesse brings his oldest son, his oldest son, Eliab, and he's got his seven sons. And of course, when Samuel sees Eliab and how tall Eliab is, immediately he says, oh, this must be the one the Lord has chosen. But before Samuel can say a word, God speaks to Samuel. Let's read those words again in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now in the Hebrew, there's actually a little bit of a distinction between words here. The very first word for, for look, or can also be translated as regard, is nabat. And so when Samuel sees, uh, you know, Eliab, he's nabating, he's regarding, he's looking at his tall stature and regarding him as the one that God must choose. But then God says in the Hebrew, no, no, God doesn't see ra'ah as man sees. 
God, Ra'ah, sees a person's heart. God looks on the inside, not just the outside. Yeah, it's interesting. He's telling, uh, it's telling Samuel, you've been nabotting, you've been regarding his appearance and his looks and his stature, but I see, I see on the inside what is most important. And we've been told earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 13 that, well, that God was seeking a man after God's own heart. It's interesting, though. Jesse himself doesn't even think to bring David because he's the youngest son and well, he's been out herding the sheep. You know, he's got his youngest son working, right? And, and well, David's been with the sheep and he probably smells. And so he's thinking, I don't want to have my smelly young son, teenage boy, come up and, and bother the great prophet Samuel. He, surely, he wouldn't choose one of, surely he wouldn't choose the eighth son, uh, my youngest son, David. But there was something about David that was special. David, as we know, was a, was a shepherd before he became king. And, and David was the kind of person who, who spent a lot of time uh, out in God's creation and, and spent a lot of time focused on the things of God. And so as we read, you know, God's looking for a man after God's own heart. And, and finally, when David comes in, smelly and ruddy and red, you know, burnt, sunburnt is what that really speaks to. Notice the description that we receive in 1 Samuel 16, 12. It says, and he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Of all the things to describe about David's stature, he makes the point that he has beautiful eyes. What was it about his eyes that made David so beautiful that someone would even remark to write that down, that David had beautiful eyes? Why are the eyes so, so important? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23, Jesus, in preaching this powerful word, says to the people listening to him in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? For Jesus, the eye is very important because it's the lamp of the body. It's going to bring light or it's going to bring darkness. And, and if you read this, these two verses within their greater context of the Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus has been talking about, well, he's been talking about the fact you can't serve both God and money. You, they can't have an equal place in your life. You've got to love one more than the other. In fact, Jesus goes on to say you have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Yes, if, you're, if you're pursuing wealth or, or anything of this world, anything temporal like prestige or power, well, that too will pass away. But if you're, if you're seeking after God and the things of, of his kingdom, well, that's eternal. And you can't serve both. You've got to make a choice. And where our eyes are focused, focused is ultimately going to indicate the kind of light that we bring to this world. Yes, David had beautiful eyes, I believe, because as a shepherd boy, he wasn't pursuing wealth. He wasn't pursuing prestige. He wasn't seeking to become king. He was simply seeking to be faithful. And so, as a faithful shepherd boy, he spends time out in God's creation, watching his father's sheep, admiring God's presence in the midst of uh, God's creation. In fact, we know that it was his time in the wilderness that eventually led David to pen the words of the most popular psalm of all time, the one that's often read at many a funeral, Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, verse 1 to 4, we read these very familiar words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice that David says the Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't simply say that the Lord is the shepherd of the people of Israel, which is also spoken of in the Old Testament. No, he says the Lord is my shepherd because while David was out in in the wilderness practicing the disciplines of solitude and silence and prayer and meditation, meditating on who God is, he developed a very intimate personal relationship so, so that David's eyes were focused on God and not the things of this world. He saw how God was providing for him. As David is described, I believe, as a man after God's own heart because David spent a lot of time in the wilderness shepherding his father's sheep in the midst of God's creation, writing beautiful songs of praise to the God who's made it all. And so we were told that David was a man after God's own heart. But what does that mean exactly, to be a man after God's own heart? What does that mean? Well, Chuck Swindoll, who's the uh, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, former president, writes this, to be a man after God's own heart means you're a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. Do the things that burden God, do they burden us? Are we, are we people after God's own heart so that we care about the things that God cares about? In fact, in light of this text, I would say that, you know, to be a person after God's own heart is, means that we also see, we ra'ah as, the God see, as God sees. We begin to see others as God sees them as well. Is that true of us? Are we burdened by the things that burden God? Do we see things the way that God sees? Specifically, do we see others the way God sees them today? When we're downtown and we're walking down the sidewalk and we see a homeless person Do we see them as as God sees them, as someone who was created in his very image and and whom God loves and cares for? Or do we see them as someone who may want to ask us for money? What do we see when we are in the midst of conflict with someone, whether it be at work or in our own family, and we're in the midst of an argument? Do we see this other person as our enemy and someone we are to defeat and someone we're supposed to win an argument with? Or do we see them as those who are created in the image of God that Jesus says we should pray for, even if they persecute us? When we see images from the border and we see people crossing the Rio Grande illegally, do we see them as illegal immigrants or do we see them as people who are creating the very image of God, as people who are, who are simply trying to do better for their family? You know, several weeks ago, there was that horrible shooting in El Paso. I was actually in Fort Davis, Texas when that happened and kind of got word of it secondhand, but I couldn't believe to hear that someone from Allen, Texas would drive all the way to El Paso, Texas to shoot Hispanics. I, I just can't. I can't fathom that, particularly as a a native Texan. Like, if you live in Texas and you don't like Hispanics, don't live in Texas uh, because they were here first, right? And uh, I love the way Orlando Lopez points out. He says, you know, uh, when he, his family is from the valley, and he said, you know, originally they were, well, they, they were Mexican, but then one day they woke up and they learned they were Texan, and the next day they woke up and they learned they were American. I mean, they'd never moved. Things, the country's changed, but they never changed. When we look at others, do we see them as those who are creating the very image of God, as, as those whom God loves, or, or do we see them as those who are, well, they're, they're going to tax our social welfare system? And I, and I know that, you know, it's a complicated issue, immigration is, and I don't have a political answer for that, but I do know what the Word of God says. 
In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 to 34, it says, when a stranger sojourns or an immigrant with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He goes on to say, we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. Last night, my family was actually talking about this. We were talking about what happened in El Paso and processing that as best we could together. And, you know, um, my daughter Hannah was, was asking the question about, you know, well, how are we supposed to manage everybody who's coming through the country? And she said, shouldn't they learn English? And I said, they should, but, you know, maybe we should learn some Spanish, too. That might help us because, well, if you look at the Western Hemisphere, the majority of people actually do speak Spanish, not just English. And it's a lot easier to learn Spanish than it is to learn English. Uh, it's funny, if you work with many missionaries, they'll tell you that, you know, someone who knows two languages is bilingual. Someone who speaks three languages is trilingual. Someone who only speaks one language, well, that's called an American. <laughs> we think that everyone should speak English, but the fact is, not everybody does, and I think we should be as accommodating as we possibly can. Yes, when we see others, how do we see them? As God sees them, those who are created in His image, those whom He dearly loves, or do we see them as people who are going to need something from us? People who might tax our school system or, or and it help uh, hinder some of our resources. Do the things that burden God, do they burden us? How can we make sure we see others the way that God sees them today? Well, if you know the story of David, you know that David is not a perfect man. As we'll see in a few weeks, he, he had some pretty incredible sins. Uh, and we'll look at that in a few weeks. But King David, in confession, admitted his failures, and he writes a beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, and in Psalm 51, he explains, and I like the way the NIV translates this, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David knew that he was sinful from the very beginning. We are all sinful. We were born with a sinful nature that left our own is, is prone to wander from God. So what was it that allowed David to move from having this sinful nature to eventually being described as a man after God's own heart? What is it that David did that maybe we could do so that our eyes might be changed, so that we could begin to see others as God sees them today? I want to go back to what it was that David did as a little boy. He was a shepherd. He spent time in the midst of God's creation. And I believe that it was in the midst of this solitude and silence and prayer and meditation that, well, that David's heart drew closer to God and, and his heart was ultimately transformed by God. That's why he was able to write Psalm 23, words that comfort us still today. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They... They comfort me. Yes, David had a, had a sense of God's constant presence with us. When was the last time you were able to spend some quality time in God's creation, just, just admiring the beauty of creation and, and admiring the goodness of God? You know, this summer I was blessed to be able to spend a little bit of time in Colorado and a little bit of the mountains uh, near Breckenridge, Colorado, and then I got a chance to go to Angel Fire, New Mexico, and spend some time in the mountains of northern New Mexico, and eventually I got to go to the uh, Fort Davis Mountains of West Texas, which are not as big, but they're still pretty, you know, and uh, it was great. Every time we'd go hiking on a day hike or morning hike, we would, I would always recite Psalm 121, which is my favorite psalm. The Lord is, or, uh, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker 
of heaven and earth. As I look at the beauty of God's creation, I, I, I think, wow, this was created by a God who spoke, as we read in Genesis, and it all came to be. Yes, we have a powerful, mighty God, and my help is not from, is not from the mountains, but the one who made the mountains, the one who had the power to make the mountains. This is we spend time in God's creation, we are able to admire the beauty of creation, and, and the beauty of creation, it reflects the goodness of our God. When was the last time you spent some time in just solitude, silence, prayer, and meditation? I know we may not be able to go to the mountains necessarily, but maybe you could pick a Saturday morning to, to go down to Palador Canyon and you know, bring a lot of water and whatever, but, or maybe you could just go to a neighboring park or, or a garden. You know, we've certainly got the botanical gardens. Or you could simply come here. Actually, the chapel is open all the time pretty much, and it's usually empty during the week. You'd be more than welcome to come and just sit in solitude and silence and prayer. Or maybe someone in your home or in your backyard. Or you don't even have to go anywhere. You need, the next time you drive your car, don't turn on the radio. And in the silence of that moment, still with your eyes opened, still eyes open. But anyway, <laughs> drive and thank God for all that he's done for you. Meditate on the goodness of God. Now, I have to point out here, it's real important to understand that Christian meditation is very different than Eastern meditation. In Eastern meditation, like in Buddhism, the whole focus is to clear your mind. But in Christian meditation, the focus is to fill your mind with the things of God. We actually see this in Philippians 4, verse 8, where the apostle Paul, writing from a prison cell, and if you read Philippians, it's a very encouraging letter to the church in Philippi, and Paul is encouraging them, even though he himself is in prison, and he's not sure when he's going to get out, but he encourages them with these words in Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Of course, Paul goes on to say that he knows what it means to be content in plenty and want, and eventually he says, Philippians 4.13, which like every Christian athlete likes to put on their jersey, it has nothing to do with basketball, football, or baseball, but it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? He, he, he can do all things. He can be content in all situations because he's focused on the goodness of our God. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Philippians 4, verse 8. Is there anything more true, more honorable, more commendable, more praiseworthy than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? For Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the beginning of John's gospel, we read that, that Jesus is the Word, the, the Word made flesh, because He's the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and, and who God's calling us to be, so that if we want to meditate on what is true and what is right and what is commendable, we just need to focus on Jesus because He's God incarnate and He came to this earth to show us the way and ultimately to be the way to our Heavenly Father, to show us what it means to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to show us what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves is as we focus and spend some time in silence, solitude, meditation, and prayer, and we meditate on Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us, well, then we will find peace, and we'll begin to see things as God sees, and we'll begin to see others as God sees them as well, those whom God loves. For as we read in those familiar words in John 3, 16 to 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. For God so loved every tribe, tongue, and nation that he didn't abandon us on our sin, but he, but he became one of us and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our heavenly Father. And then he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross. And then on the third day, he conquered both sin and death on our behalf so that we could have the assurance of, e- of eternal life and the gift of a new life if we simply believe in him. Yes, if we want to see others the way that God sees them, we need to see them through the lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We need to see others as those who have been created in the very image of God that, yes, are born sinful just like we are, but God did not abandon them in their sin. God sent his son to die for them and to die for us. Next time we find ourselves in conflict with someone, we need to remember that God died for this person. He, he loves this person. The next time we, we see news reports about illegal immigrants or whatever, we need, we need to remember that, that Jesus loves them. In fact, what's interesting is the majority of those who are coming across the border from the south, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're mostly Roman Catholic. How do we see those in our community? Those who are different from us, Do we see them as God sees them? As those who were created in his image? As those that Jesus died for? If we want to have eyes to see others the way God sees them, we've got to do what David did and what Jesus did. We need to spend time in solitude, prayer, silence, and meditation. I love what Richard Foster says about silence and solitude in his best-selling book, Celebration of Discipline. He writes, the purpose of silence and solitude is to be able to see and hear. May each one of us this week take some time to be alone with God so that we might recognize who God is and all that God has done for us, that we might meditate on that and that we might be able to see and hear that the Lord is good and that he loves everyone. Please join me as you pray.